the Anesthesia Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this live Anesthesia Journal broadcast. The direct reporting of awareness in maternity patients, or otherwise known as the DREAMY study, was a multi-centre prospective cohort study that aimed to establish the instance factors and the quality of accidental awareness during general anaesthesia in obstetrics. A secondary study was also embedded within it with the aim of describing general anaesthesia practice in obstetric patients in the UK. Today we are delighted to be joined by the authors of both papers, which have been, and both papers have been published recently in the journal. So good afternoon, Nula, Peter and uh, Chris. Uh, Chris also joins us from the um, Obstetric Anaesthetist Association as well, and we're delighted to have him with us. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi. Um, so first of all, um, I'll ask um, it's a question for either Nula or Peter um, about dreaming more generally. Uh, why did you do it? Whose idea was it? And, and how long did the, did the whole thing take? Uh, so thanks, Mike. Uh, and, and actually, just before I answer that, can I just say a few extra thank yous as well? Uh, so a big thank you yet again to all the 750 plus investigators who contributed to the study, without whom none of this would have been possible. Uh, and also a big thank you to Anesthesia for doing such a fantastic job in uh, disseminating the results and giving us the opportunity to do fantastic things like this live broadcast to, to share the message about the study as well. Um, but to come back to your question, so uh, I actually organised the study uh, starting about five years ago uh, to answer some of the questions which uh, NAP5 or the fifth national audit project uh, of anaesthetists in the UK asked very clearly. Uh, and that is namely to, to validate the suggestion that accidental awareness during general anaesthesia or AGA uh, was overrepresented in obstetric patients. Uh, and of course, the NAP5 numbers are quite startling for obstetrics. So uh, Obstetric patients accounted for less than 1% of all the general anaesthetic activity in the 2014 year that uh, NAP5 was run, but accounted for over 10% of all of the awareness reports that were collected. Uh, and to me, that begs a series of really interesting questions that we tried to answer with a study. Uh, and one question relates to um, methodology differences. And NAP5 looked at spontaneous reports of awareness, we used a direct questioning method. Uh, and there's a question whether that rate of awareness was so high in obstetrics just because obstetric patients have got greater opportunities for reporting awareness after surgery. Uh, or maybe it's because there's a confluence of risk factors in obstetrics, things like emergency surgery, rapid sequence induction, use of neuromuscular blockers, obesity, difficult airway management, all of these things that we think increase the risk of awareness. Or maybe there's something uh, special about obstetric physiology, about changes in hormones during pregnancy that influence anesthetic effect thresholds or memory. Uh, so what we wanted to do was, was approach some of those questions and specifically to look at incidence experience and psychological implications of awareness in a prospective study uh, in uh, using comparable methodology as direct questioning rather than the spontaneous reports that NAP5 uh, used. Uh, so really, I'd love to take credit for the idea, but actually it's written in black and white in chapter 15 of the NAP5 report. So it wasn't my idea at all. Uh, and it was a five-year process uh, from development to grant to launching the study to follow-up and analysis. Uh, and interestingly enough, I actually tweeted uh, an infographic of the timeline uh, that I was expecting the study to take about two, three years ago. And we pretty much hit that timeline, even despite COVID. I think we're maybe about six months off, but uh, that's not too bad for a study of this scale, I think. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll move on to a question for, for Nula to sort of go into a bit of detail about the studies. Um, so studies based on spontaneous reporting of awareness, um, or with uh, Bryce interviews, which we're, we're most of us are familiar with, um, if, if those are used alone, uh, they sometimes find a low instance of awareness. But this is despite Bryce interviews sometimes they reporting awareness episodes, some might be as well. Um, so how was your study different and what does it tell us that's new? 
Uh, well, I think the study was different in, an, in a number of ways. I think, first of all, we used a, a thrice Bryce technique. Um, so they had the Bryce, which was a questionnaire, a validated questionnaire put to them at two time intervals while in hospital and then a, a few, um, few week, couple of weeks later, a month later as well. So I think using a, a thrice Bryce technique uh, made a big difference. I think the other important aspects of it was just the scale of the study. You know, it was under, undertaking any study with regards to general anesthesia and obstetrics is tricky because we just simply don't do that many of them. So the fact that we were able to get so many centres involved with such big numbers, I think that made a big difference. And of course, with good geographical spread, so it wasn't just limited to perhaps more esoteric practice in one part of the country. It got a good national spread of different hospitals. So I think the those two elements, I think I would pick out particularly, made it a distinct and a unique study in that regard. I don't know if Peter's got anything he wants to add to that so one of the things i think i'm quite proud about with the study is um the obsessive level of detail that we went into uh, actually identifying patients with awareness and of course if you think about it awareness is an incredibly difficult thing to to both detect and then report because it's not something that you can do a binary test for uh, it's inherently a subjective experience uh, detecting it is reliant upon subjective memory uh, and of course in obstetric patients you're talking about women who may well be exhausted at the end of labor having an unexpected general anesthetic uh, for an emergency procedure those are those are situations where you would expect memory to be uh, difficult to report or distorted anyway uh, and um and then you need to make a decision about what those reports represent uh, because you've got to classify those awareness reports in some way. And so we, we looked at every one of those steps, what I call detection, verification, adjudication, and then classification, uh, and down to really fine granular detail, worked out what we think was the most objective way to translate those subjective reports. Uh, I mean, none of this went into the paper, but uh, I even did mathematical modeling, looking at the effect of interclass correlation with different numbers of adjudicators on the adjudicating panel uh, and worked out the optimum number to reduce the risk of misclassification. Um, so, and that number was five and there happened to be five other co-authors which worked out very nicely. But, but still the, the point is that we went to, to, to really obsessive levels of detail to get the most robust methodology we could. Uh, and I think that's what's really important about the findings is that we can say uh, with more confidence than we've ever been able to say before what that risk of awareness is in this cohort. And that's thanks to the robustness of the methodology that we use for the study. If I can add to that, having been involved with NAP5 and then subsequently Dreamy, I would absolutely endorse that uh, aspect about the uh, um, veracity of the findings and the really intense adjudication. And there were some really tricky meetings and discussions about some of the cases and how they would be interpreted. Uh, very similar, to, but perhaps even tougher than some of the incredibly difficult discussions at times on the NAP5 um, panel adjudication. So, uh, yeah, I think that was a, a really unique aspect of the project. Although, of course, all of this is just standing on the shoulders of giants, really. It's just taking the next logical step. But uh, I think particularly in a field like awareness, where if you look at the previous studies that have been conducted, there's a, there's a huge amount of variability and often a lack of transparency in uh, in that adjudication process. So we really focused on getting it right for this study. So we're also delighted to have um, Chris Alton with us, who's the president of the Obstetrics Anesthetics Association. Uh, and I'm going to follow that up with a question for Chris, which um, relates to one of the uh, headline findings of the study, which is that the instance of, of awareness in obstetrics might be three times higher than previously thought. Um, so should patients be worried um, or are they... Are there other alternative explanations that, that, that we're able to um, come to to, to rationalise this? I think, I think lots of people should be concerned. I think anaesthetists should be concerned um, and um, patients need to be informed about the findings uh, of this study. Um, 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 I th I, in a sense, I think they should be worried. 
I think that that this is an unacceptable instance of awareness. And I think as a profession, we need to take steps to reduce that instance. I think a, a lot of people felt that the instance of awareness in obstetrics was a historical problem, um, that it was somehow to do with drugs that we'd used in the past, techniques where we'd, we'd used in the past. And certainly the old fashioned anaesthetics where, where high concentrations of oxygen were given before the baby was born and, and low concentrations of inhalation agents were given um, clearly would have led to quite a high instance of uh, of awareness. But I think that we, we felt we were a bit better than that and it wasn't uh, something that happened with modern anaesthetics. So I think this is, a, um, if you'll pardon the pun, a, a bit of a wake-up call to the profession to, to tackle this seriously. Um, and, and I think that... Um, it gives ammunition to obstetric anaesthetists to get the resources that we need to, to provide um, services that, that are fit for uh, the 21st century. For, for a long time, uh, uh, obstetric anaesthesia has been seen to be done in a different building and a bit of a poor relation to the proper anaesthetics that we're giving in main theatre. So this is a this is a serious problem. It's a serious problem for patients. It's a serious problem for us. And we need to take steps to, to reduce it. And one of those steps that need to happen is um, uh, a, a, a better guidelines for uh, practising obstetric anaesthetics as, as to um, what we need to do to, to reduce it. And there are some very clear messages in this paper about um, at things that we can change that might improve things that I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later. Can can I just interject something there? I, I don't want to undermine the findings, and I, and I agree with Chris, it's a very concerning result. But if there is a woman you know, who does happen to watch this, um, I want to reassure that the numbers are still extremely low. This is a, you know, a common occurrence for women who experience, who have to have a general anaesthetic for cesarean section. So the numbers are still very low. And I feel actually very positive about it because it, it is a fantastic opportunity for us to do real quality improvement. Um, in this particular area of anaesthetic practice? I'd also add actually that um, I think the study itself probably had something of a Hawthorne effect as well and that I know of several departments who participated in the study who uh, just the act of being involved really shone a light on obstetric general anaesthesia practice within their department and uh, provoked some changes and updates to to local guidance, uh, even before the results were out as well. So, so just the process of being involved in the study uh, is actually changing practice to hopefully reduce risk for, for women as well. And of, and of course, the number of GAs that we do for obstetric patients is probably lower now than it has ever been. So actually, as Nula says, those, those, those absolute numbers are still relatively small. So I'll bring you on to um, the, I think the next logical area, which is the, um, uh, as, as Chris mentioned, some of the um, uh, historical aspects um, of, of anaesthetic practice, um, and, and one that gets mentioned time and time again is the choice of induction agent. So this study um, interestingly found that the use of fipentone or, or ketamine as, as the sole induction agent of anaesthesia. Um, was associated with a fourfold and a 26-fold, uh, respectively, in increased incidence of awareness during general anaesthesia. Um, but do you think that uh, the, 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 there was obviously another study within this that showed um, uh, practices in relation to general anaesthesia and obstetrics? Uh, have things, cha things changed significantly since NAP5, and, and are we getting better? Yeah, so, so the activity survey in NAT5, um, which was 2013, 2014, and then another survey of obstetric anaesthetists from that same era showed that anywhere between 93 and 97% of obstetric GAs are with, uh, were with Thia. In this study, we found just over half were with Thia. So that's a dramatic change in the course of uh, a relatively short time span. So things are changing. Um, and of course, that five raised the red flag around FIO and, and to a lesser extent ketamine, but FIO is not a, a bad drug as such. It just tends to be used badly. Um, and we've got evidence of 
overdosage in fire from the Embrace UK report being associated with maternal deaths. We've got evidence of underdosing of fire uh, and that five, there's a risk of syringe swaps with fire. It needs pre-mixing. Uh, but I think probably more importantly than all of that, it, it's just unfamiliar to, to most junior anaesthetists uh, now. Um, and, uh, and it's a drug that's often picked up um, in the middle of the night by, by a trainee who, who isn't using that drug at any other point in their, their clinical training or practice. Uh, and that's quite an important point to highlight. Uh, and even beyond that, there's actually some very recent evidence looking at frontal spectral EEG that suggests that propofol induces deeper anesthesia than firepenta in pregnant women having cesarean sections as well. So I think there's some really good indicators to 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 switch and it does look like practices switching as well uh, and if you actually break down thio and propofol usage on a month by month basis during the 15 months that we recruited to the study you can see a trend down in thio even during those 15 months as well so things are changing i just i absolutely agree with what Peter said, but for me, I think the key issue is the unfamiliarity. And Peter mentioned junior anaesthetists. I would say anaesthetists are pretty much any age these days. But um, there's, I mean, just that unfamiliarity aspect. And there's another really interesting study from a French multi-center study looking at the incidence of hypoxemia on induction of general anesthesia for cesarean section published in a, another journal. Um, and they found that a, a, an induction agent other than propofol was associated with a higher incidence of hypoxemia and difficult or failed intubation. So, I, you know, this problem is not, although we, we the UK remains the predominant user of thiopentone, it's not a problem that's unique to the UK. And I think this unfamiliarity aspect is a huge problem. And you, propofol is now ubiquitous in the world. Um, it, it just reminds me of when I used to give ECT anaesthetics many years ago when I was an SHO and I was given methohexatone and that was the only time I used methohexatone and I'd kind of look at the ODA and say is this enough shall I keep going when shall I stop and I suspect the same thing happens with thiopentone in the middle of the night on label wards uh, an anaesthetic registrar is looking at the ODA saying shall I give a bit more shall I stop um yeah uh, Chris have you got anything to um uh, add about in induction agents and um well, just to um, say a couple of things to say. I think the, the first one is that um, the, the ketamine story is slightly different. It was used in very few women in this, this study. And, and I think it, for, for, for uh, if there's any non-anesthetists um, watching, it would be few people's um, first choice drug for um, obstetric anaesthesia. It's, it's really used in it as a drug of desperation. I, 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 I was talking to a woman a few um, weeks ago who'd had it after an RTA for a, for a, a, a cesarean section, and, and and for me that was a marker of just how sick she looked to the to the anaesthetist who had to anaesthetize. So she was um, uh, quite hypovolemic. So so I think ketamine would, would have to put aside and say that's got sp specific indications. I, I would say that um, uh, in in the study that they divided the cases into um, probable and possible, and so the, the probable cases. Um, were probably about half of the all of the cases combined, and the um, the uh, ketamine case um, was was slightly unusual. Um, um, so I, I think you could, as I say, I don't think you can say too much about ketamine. I think thiopentone is reducing in popularity. I, I agree completely. I was talking to a, a, a an SHO only this morning about thiopentone, and she'd never used it in any part of her initial training. And, and I think. Um, for those people who've used thiopentone for the last 30 years, I'm sure they know the dose. I'm sure they know um, how to use it. But for people um, in their training, early on their training, I, I, I can't see that they've used very much of it. I, I don't think they can get the, the nuances and subtleties of the dosing. And I, I think we're coming to an end of the thiopentone era. And the, the figures in, in, in this study just demonstrate it's, 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 it's gradually uh, falling away. Um, one of the other interesting things about the study is that there's quite big regional variations in the use of thiopentone. Um, and I think that stems from 
um, people, like a lot of things, people from central schools permeated to their region with their trainees. I think there are places who they use a lot of thiopentone and places that don't use so much thiopentone at all. I think I think that's very interesting. But I, I do genuinely think we've seen that we're seeing the, the, the last of thiopentone. And if we did this again in another five years, um, hardly anybody would be using thiopentone if it was still available. Yeah, well, that's more propofol. Um, are there any other trends that you identified in this study that are showing that the way that we're giving anesthetics to um, uh, pregnant women is changing? Yeah, so there's some things that are changing. And then, interestingly enough, there's some things that aren't as well. Uh, so one of the things that has changed is opioid use at induction for, for GA. So the activity survey from NAT5, which, as I say, was 2013, 2014, found around 20% use of short-acting opioids. Uh, and there's growing evidence that that has less of a harmful effect in terms of neonatal APCAR scores or airway interventions with the neonates uh, than was previously thought. And we found opioid use at around 40%. Uh, and that's probably uh, a good thing with evidence that opioids are not harmful to the neonate, uh, but that they may confer some benefit in terms of uh, argo risk, particularly during induction. Uh, so that's one thing that's changed. Uh, and then there's things that haven't changed so much. So I don't particularly want to get into the socks, uh, sucks rock debate, but sucks and rock haven't really changed so much. So sucks use was over 40, uh, over 90% in the NAT5 and NAT6 activity surveys. We found 86% in our study. Uh, uh, and then uh, there's one thing that does worry me a little bit about uh, a lack of change, and that's one of the, the findings around difficult airways and failed intubations. Uh, and I think what's quite remarkable over the course of the last few decades is how little change there has been in the prevalence of failed airway management in obstetrics. Uh, and, and our numbers were one in 312, which is actually very comparable with other studies uh, over the course of the last uh, 10, 20 years. Uh, and yet, despite that high risk, we found a very low use of video laryngoscopy. So only around 2% of airways were managed with a video laryngoscope. Um, and even if you look at the difficult airways, so there were 10 grade four views on direct laryngoscopy. Six of those were intubated with a video laryngoscope, uh, two of a bougie, and two failed and had a supraglottic airway inserted instead. But those two, ne those two uh, 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 failed airways never saw a video laryngoscope. Uh, and I think there's evidence particularly within OBS now, that, that we should be thinking about availability of video laryngoscopy far more than, uh, than, we, should, uh, than we have done previously. And of course, these are tools that can change, uh, change these incidences, but they don't work if no one uses them. Yeah, I would agree with that. The um, video laryngoscopy issue, I think, is interesting, and it's something that has been picked up in other studies. The French study I mentioned, which was almost a thousand patients, less than one percent video laryngoscopy use. Another good South African series published last year, about four hundred patients, again, video laryngoscopy rarely used. But it, there, there are some. We need to answer some important questions about video laryng laryngoscopes on the label ward, not just the availability issue, but um, but which one, um, and we know you recognize that trainees rotate frequently and if your know, hospital a has one type of scope and hospital b has a different one that doesn't make it easy for those trainees rotating around who and we know that this group provide a lot of the cover for general anesthesia out of hours so i think there are unanswered questions but it's definitely a, a really important aspect of practice we need to address uh, anything to add chris <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's a couple of things. I, I think if, if we had a study that demonstrated that you could um, reduce the incidence of failed intubation to say, you know, one in a thousand from one in 300, then that would be a, a massive addition to uh, our knowledge base in obstetrics. Um, the, the, I think this goes back to my my, my feeling that that. Um, uh, obstetric disease has been a bit of a poor relation when it comes to the rest of the hospital, and it, it's it's obvious it's obvious that you you can't use a video laryngoscope if it's not there. Mm -hmm. And it would be interesting to know how many of the hospitals in in the study had a had a reusable video laryngoscope available next to their 
their, their, their Macintosh scope because I think um, we should be encouraging people to use uh, the video scope as their first line uh, in, in, uh, in uh, obstetric anesthesia. We know the instance of failed intubation is very high. And um, we, we also know that there's a relatively reduced time in which you can get the tube in. So it, it, I, I, I do believe that the, the first attempt should be the best attempt. And in most people's hands, um, the, the, the best attempt will come using a video laryngoscope. So I think this, this um, it's interesting because it confirms the, 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 the uh, instance of, of failed intubation obstetrics is around one in, one in 270, one in 300, one in 300 and a bit. You know, well, the figures haven't changed in decades. Um, and I think the time has come to to seize the seize, seize the ball by the horns and and actually introduce them and and have it as a standard of practice in obstetric anesthesia. It needs to be there for people to use. So I guess of the um, standards of, of um, equipment or monitoring might include depth of anesthesia monitoring. Uh, Peter, was there anything that came out of the study about depth of anesthesia monitoring? Was it something people were using? Was there any associations between it and, uh, and cases of awareness uh, or anything else to learn from that? Yeah, so as, as you know, depth of anesthesia monitoring it, it, historically in this country has not had the same level of uptake as it has in some other uh, Antipodean countries, for example. Uh, and there's various sociological reasons why that's the case. I mean, a lot of the seminal research around depth of anesthesia monitors has come out of Australia and New Zealand, uh, but we don't tend to use them quite as much in, in the UK, uh, and we use them even less uh, in obstetrics. I think there are only seven hospitals that used uh, depth of anesthesia monitors in the study, uh, and even then not for all of their patients. Uh, and I have to confess, I'm quite skeptical about uh, uh, depth of anesthesia monitors, which, which I'll, I'll explain why. Uh, and part of the reason is that these aren't monitors of awareness, which is what you want. Uh, uh, and there's actually nothing in the algorithm or development of those algorithms that specifically detects awareness. They don't even actually detect depth of anesthesia. They, they detect an extrapolation of EEG changes during sedation. That's how they were validated. Uh, and of course, you can't, can't actually validate against depth of anesthesia beyond the loss of responsiveness because there's nothing to test against. Um, so, so the validation is very tricky with these monitors. Uh, the, sec the second reason is that uh, the first part of the algorithm in these process EEG monitors uh, looks at high frequency electrical activity. Uh, and these are the same waves uh, that, that are very difficult to disambiguate from EMG, so uh, muscle activity. Uh, and if you give a neuromuscular blocking drug, you can decrease those same high frequency electrical waves. So the monitors are therefore uh, actually least useful in the patients that you most want to use them in, i.e. patients who, who have muscle relaxants. Uh, and you can see this again in an Australian, fascinating Australian study of anesthetic uh, volunteers or anaesthetists who received neuromuscular blocking drugs with no anesthesia, but with BIS monitors on. Um, and these, these anaesthetists are awake, receiving rock or sucks, and have BIS values of 50 to 60. Um, and that just, show, that just shows uh, how easily fooled BIS monitors are. Uh, and part of that is because they rely on high frequency waves to, to detect uh, changes in uh, uh, perceived depth of anesthesia. Uh, and then finally, there's, there's something I do with, uh, with my trainees, actually, which is uh, to prove that there's a lag time uh, with uh, depth of anesthesia, uh, with processed EEG monitors, um, which you can, you can demonstrate quite elegantly. Uh, so if you pull out the connector between the patient sensor and the monitor, then the machine knows that you've disconnected it, but you can fool it by cutting the sensor instead. And if you do that, then you have a BIS value for about 90 seconds after the electrical cables between monitor and patient are entirely severed. And that's because there's a, an averaging process time, uh, a lag time on these monitors. So they are not real time. Uh, and, and we know from NAP5 and other awareness studies that um, 
that a lot of awareness uh, events are actually quite short. They can last seconds or minutes. But with a, a, a BIS monitor, um, it's a minute and a half before you even detect a change on the monitor. Uh, and then finally, of course, there's all the clinical trial evidence that, that actually when you compare BIS against entitled volatile anesthetic agent concentration, then there isn't a difference in terms of awareness outcomes. So basically, they've got very poor neurobiological foundations. The clinical trials haven't shown them to be effective either. But that's not to say that there isn't a role for uh, learning to read raw EEG uh, for understanding the brain state. But obviously, that's a more complex uh, process and it's required something that requires very specific training. Uh, uh, training. So yeah, there is, a, there is a role for depth of anesthesia monitors, but I'm very skeptical about uh, the processed EEG monitors. I think sometimes the conversation about this as in particular is this reliance on the absolute figure. And certainly when I'm teaching TIVA, it's all about the number. But as with so much of what we do in, in medicine and anesthesia, it's not just about one isolated snapshot of the BIS number. It's about looking at everything else, the heart rate, the blood pressure, the clinical picture, taking everything. And I think if we could shift our focus a little bit from just oh, what's the BIS score to looking at the whole overall picture, I, I think that's where, where they're useful. I mean, I wouldn't want to rubbish. I certainly wouldn't want to give a, a TIVA anaesthetic without some kind of um, depth of anaesthesia monitor, but it's certainly not my be all and end all in terms of assessing the depth of anaesthesia. Uh, Chris, what's the um, uh, your your view on uh, uh, depth of anaesthesia monitoring? And has um, the Association uh, of Obstetric Anaesthetists um, uh, ever made sort of a position on this? No, not at all. I, I mean, I think I think it's it's uh, we. I think there will be some guidelines uh, which we're producing with the Association of Anaesthetists, um, and no doubt we'll 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 discuss this. But I I think very few places are, are using them. A few I think a few people are giving TCI um, um, in for cesarean section, and I think some places do use bismolgen routinely for them. In my own hospital, we're just going to suck it and see and try and use it for elective sections. We haven't done so at all until now. We've just got some new monitors and we're going to see. Given the high incidence of um, uh, of, of accidental awareness, I think it's entirely reasonable to use the kit that you've got to try and detect it. But I, I think that the most important monitor is the anaesthetist who asks themselves, am I giving an anaesthetic here? And I think that's a fundamental question that we we, we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the monitor uh, will only add to that, it won't replace that. I think if you are going to use BIS, I think there is an interesting question around depth of anaesthesia, and that is, are the target BIS values the same in obstetrics as they are for non-obstetric practice? Um, and uh, if you if you believe the hypothesis around hormonal changes affecting uh, anaesthetic resistance, then uh, you might argue that actually BIS target should be lower in obstetrics than, than, than for non-obstetric practice. I, I think there is evidence for that. I, I mean, the, the ones study that I'm aware of published in the other journal um, suggested that you needed a BIS score of 27 to obtain isolated forearm responses, laryngoscopy, surgical incision. So I mean, I think you know, 27 is a, a low, a reasonably lowish BIS score. But um, I think, yeah, there's definitely some merit in that suggestion. Just, just a question. Sorry, Peter. Um, did you get the impression when you looked through the clinical notes that people were giving a predetermined dose of thiopentone, as many people were taught to do, or, or to put it crudely, did they actually check the patient had gone to sleep? In the past, people were told to give a, a predetermined dose of thiopentone, uh, give some succin, try and put a tube in, um, and, and they seemed to miss out the step in traditional teaching of actually checking the patient had, had, had gone to sleep. It was, did you find any feeling that that had happened? Yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously very difficult to, to collate that kind of point of care uh, observations from uh, the clinical notes. But, um, but yeah, I, I, my, my, 
my impression is that probably a lot of these were uh, predetermined doses rather than titrated or of a modified rapid sequence induction, which which I think most people are more familiar with when using propofol rather less so than with thiopentone. Uh, uh, and yeah, around exactly how many patients actually had formal checks for, for or clinical checks for uh, for depth of anesthesia wasn't something that we specifically looked at, but a very good question. That's quite one uh, complex um, area of practice. And uh, thank you very much, Peter, for that um, really good tip that I'm going to use now for uh, all, all my trainees uh, to teach them about depth of anesthesia monitoring, uh, which, which I didn't know actually, fascinating. Um, and uh, we've had a comment from Fiona Pearson who uh, completely agrees that the absolute biz uh, number isn't all that useful sometimes, but what's more useful is the, the raw and uh, processed um, EG, which um, um, I, I guess will become more and more useful for anesthetists to be able to interpret. So I'm going to move us on to a slightly more difficult area, which is uh, around the complex problem of um, general anesthesia in obstetrics out of hours um, and um, what the points uh, were that were highlighted from the study in that uh, and what some of the potential future ways forward are. Uh, I'll open that up to either uh, Needle or, or Peter. Uh, well, I, I think the probably the key thing um, for something you do infrequently is to try and aim for much more standardization of practice. I think, you know, the, the fantastic rapid sequence survey that pub was published in Anesthesia, and we know from multiple surveys in the UK, uh, we haven't got a proper definition for what constitutes rapid sequence induction. Do you give a pre-calculated bolus rapidly, or do you titrate the induction agents to effect? When do you give the muscle relaxant, which muscle relaxant, all of those questions. And I think there's a certain comfort and security and safety in when something that you do infrequently using a tried and tested recipe. And I think if we could aim for standardization for obstetric general anesthesia this, um, and offer that as a recipe to obstetric anesthetists and the occasional obstetric anesthetists, those people who cover it out of hours but don't necessarily do it to the during the daytime, I, I think that's probably the way forward for reducing awareness, improving safety in this areas and I, I would hope that the guidelines that we're aiming to develop really offer a standardized approach peter I, yeah want to add anything to that yeah no i completely agree and i i think that i think the best evidence is that rather than train people to do complex things then actually asking people to do standardized simple things is a far better way of reducing uh, critical incidents. Uh, I think we can probably approach uh, obstetric general anesthesia uh, in a slightly different way from a team perspective as well. Uh, having drills and allocated roles assigned at the start of shifts. I mean, if COVID taught us anything, it's about how to use a checklist for intubation uh, uh, and, uh, and actually assign team roles as part of that process as well. Uh, I think we can apply some of that learning to obstetric general anesthesia as well. Uh, I think out of hours, the default assumption where there is capacity for this is that an obstetric GA should be a two anaesthetist uh, general anesthetic technique. Uh, but obviously not all hospitals have got uh, the, the resources on site to be able to provide that. Um, and then putting, putting trainees with the right tools at hand like video laryngoscopy and an extra syringe of propofol ready to give during induction uh, are obvious things that we can do to mitigate risks as well. Can I, I was just going to say about the two-person GA. So Chris and I actually debated that at an OAA meeting a couple of years ago. And I would say it wasn't a popular suggestion or solution. But I, I think in units that have the capacity, I think it's a very helpful um, strategy. So, for example, in my unit, we're very remote from the main hospital. If the uh, Whoever's giving the GA, uh, they're often working alone. And if they have to summon help, I mean, that help is going to take 10 minutes to summons and to arrive at least. So what we've recently introduced is that as soon as the GA call goes 
goes out, somebody on the other side is alerted and somebody, even if it's the SHO, makes their way over so that the person giving the GA knows that help is on their way. Even that that person arrives and the tube is down and the anaesthetic is continuing, surgery is going on, but help is on its way. And even knowing that help is on its way, I think can reduce some of the anxiety that can impede performance in that situation. But I do also recognise that that's not going to be a strategy that will, will work for many hospitals. And I think we will have to think hard about strategies that will work for the majority of hospitals. It's also difficult because um, we're giving trainees fewer opportunities to do GAs these days as well. Uh, so I think there's a role for simulation training in filling in that, that gap where uh, clinical practice uh, existed. Um, uh, that's something that's, that's, that's perhaps a little bit more challenged to, to complete, but I think that's something that's well within our remit to achieve. Yeah, hey, Chris? Um, well, I, I think there's, there's a couple of things, really. Um, Neela mentioned things that um, COVID taught us. I, I think one of the things that COVID has taught us, and one of the things that some of the reports that have come out in the last um, uh, year or so have taught us is is that you can reduce the number of general anaesthetics that you give if you, if you develop your situational awareness of what's going on in the labor ward. So um, during COVID, many hospitals halved their numbers of, of general anaesthetic cesarean sections, and they did so because they were concerned about uh, patients having COVID and making that COVID worse, and they were worried about um, aerosol-generating procedures in the in a general setting, but what they actually did um, was they were very proactive in identifying patients at risk of needing a category one cesarean section and um, uh, assessing them, and in some cases uh, uh, um, making a stronger advice to uh, achieve epidural analgesia in those women. Um, it, people have not, have recognised for a long time that a category one cesarean section is, is rarely a surprise and we can do a lot um, to, reduce, to, to, to reduce the need for general anaesthesia in those patients. I think making sure uh, if not people can come to help with a general anaesthetic, they're at least aware that one is happening is useful. There are um, uh, there, are, there are hospitals like mine that put out a, an arrest type call when a, a country runs cesarean section is being made and it goes to all the anaesthetists in the hospital. There are also um, um, bleep systems in other hospitals that are sort of an airway emergency bleep, like an arrest bleep for, for things. So I, I do think we every hospital is going to be different. In some hospitals, it's going to be very easy to find a second anaesthetist if it's necessary, but in many hospitals, it's going to be in, impossible. But you can work with what you've, you've got. I agree with Peter that we need to practice um, at GA for cesarean section, in many ways, an elective case on an elective cesarean section list um, uh, who wants a general anaesthetic is a very good teaching uh, case uh, to do. So, so that in some ways they're gems to, 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 to aid teaching. But I also think um, that those of us who are uh, obstetric anaesthetists um, need to remove some of the mystique about um, uh, obstetric anaesthesia. For many years, we've been saying, yeah, yeah, I know that you use propofol, alfentanil, rocuronium when you anaesthetize your hernia list, but in, you know, obstetric anaesthesia is really different and you've got to use this thiopentone stuff and it sucks and you've, you've got to do gift sodium citrate, all sorts of weird stuff. And, and gradually, one by one, those sacred cows are being removed and, and, and actually just give an anaesthetic, probably with a bit of tilt, make sure they're asleep. It's what you do all the time in your normal practice. Let's not make obstetric anaesthesia more difficult than it has to be. And I know that as president of the Obstetric Anaesthesia Association, that may sound a bit odd, but I, I genuinely believe that um, we need to take some of the mystique and the mystery about obstetric anaesthesia away. Can, can I just add, I, I think it's really important that we don't demonise general anaesthesia. I, I'm a, the trials that Chris mentioned demonstrating that people reduce their GA rates, that, that, that's completely fantastic. But um, general anaesthesia will always be necessary in obstetrics. There's never going to be situations where we completely remove it. And our efforts should be on trying to reduce it sa the rate safely, but also a, a equal priority trying to provide as safe as general anaesthetic as possible. Uh, I did see a really funny comment on Twitter I think Carolyn Johnson from St George's when she was an SHO her consultant told her a cesarean section is just a big appendix do what you normally do for an appendix 
I think that's a really key message, Chris, that I think will resonate with a lot of people, actually, uh, to sim simplify practices and to make it more accessible. Um, so I, I'll come on to another question which, with that in mind, actually, um, and uh, I'll open it up to, to all three of you in turn. Um, what are the what are three three ways, the top your top three ways that you can ensure consistency of general anaesthetic practice and maybe even uh, reduce risk of uh, accidental awareness during general anaesthesia? I'll start with Neil. Okay, um, so have two syringes of propofol. We've all given a syringe of propofol and the woman's eyes are open at the end of it. And you're thinking, ooh, okay, so have two syringes ready. Um, have the use a video scope with I mean in my hospital we're fortunate enough to have a CMAC and I always try to teach it as a look down and use it as a direct laryngoscope in the first instance and then look across and look at the pictures so you're still getting that direct laryngoscope experience and the third thing that I do is I like to use an opioid induction I use alfentanil a milligram of alfentanil which mostly I give before while I'm pre-oxygenating I wait for that subtle heart rate change you get when you give a small bolus of alfentanil just a few beats and then I give my induction agent so a bit of short-acting opioids have two syringes of propofol handy and if you've got one and if you you know how to use it I would uh, advocate using a video laryngoscope. Uh, Peter? Uh, so I'll pick something slightly different. Uh, I'll say that I used high-dose SIBO, and uh, this is probably the only situation in which I do use nitrous, but I use nitrous for its washing effect early on in the GA and then wean off after a few minutes. And that's avoiding that uh, mind-the-gap phenomenon, particularly in Category 1 cesarean sections, where you have a very short time lag between uh, airway instrumentation and then massive surgical stimulus a few seconds later. Uh, I would say compensate for uterine uh, hypotonia uh, with drugs rather than by reducing your uh, anesthetic depth, which was always the historic teaching. Um, and uh, sometimes I get slightly odd looks from ODAs and ODPs when I do this, but have a low threshold for suspecting awareness. And if you do suspect it, speak to your patient and reassure them uh, that you understand what's happening and that you are uh, fixing the problem. Uh, and uh, uh, and also it's, 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 it's to actually have a conversation with patients after an obstetric GA as well. And that doesn't have to be a formal debrief, but it should be a, a conversation about their experience of that, uh, of that anesthetic episode uh, and give them an opportunity to recount any particular memories or anything that was concerning or worrying for them during that process. Okay, and finally, uh, Chris? Well, I'm going to come up with some different ones. but So mine would be uh, use a proper anaesthetic and make sure the patient's gone to sleep. Um, um, and that means giving, uh, often means uh, propofol, uh, alfentanil, rocuronium, propofol. So give another little bolus of propofol after the rocuronium. Use neuromuscular blocking uh, monitoring. So you use monitoring um, uh, and uh, have a very low threshold uh, for giving to gamadex at the end. If you've used an intubated dose of rocuronium, unless you've got the slowest surgeon in the world, and believe me, we've got them, um, then you, uh, you almost certainly will need to give to gamadex at, at the end um, uh, because they won't reverse with neostigmine and gamadex Yeah, in fact, two of the awareness cases in the study were... Uh, residual paralysis during emergence. So uh, uh, neuromuscular monitoring, uh, blockade monitoring and reversal is clearly very, very important. One of, one of the really nice things about both studies was um, they did, they've done a few things so, so far. So they've described practice, but they've also described not just how it was different in the past and how it's different currently, but they, as you've mentioned really nicely, Peter, um, captured changes even during recruitment, during the study. Um, but also they'll probably change practice now, for example, um, you know, maybe um, practice now will become more standardized and maybe we will um, start to, you know, use more modern techniques more, more commonly. And, and um, But a final question for, for all of you is um, where next and, and what are the future priorities for research in this area? Uh, and have you got anything going already that, that you're thinking of starting or uh, uh, that we need to watch out for in the future? 
So, yeah, I'll let Chris talk a little bit more about this, but we we are in the process of organising some uh, some national guidance uh, around uh, obstetric GA activity. Uh, I'm I'm personally quite interested in exploring. Uh, some of the things I've hinted about before around that neurological basis of anesthesia resistance in obstetric patients. It's obviously something that's very difficult to do because uh, it involves giving GAs to pregnant women, uh, but something that's very, very interesting. Uh, and around that role of EEG uh, in obstetrics as well, uh, and maybe not research, but certainly more QI. Uh, and again, something that we've talked about previously, uh, and that is about standardization and implementation of these forthcoming guidance into, into practice as well. Yeah, um, I think uh, well, an obvious area for us to explore, but again, would be difficult to undertake, would be to look at TIVA in obstetrics. That, you know, aside from uh, the obvious challenges, there's just simply logistical challenges, getting the pumps ready in what is often a very hurried situation. Would it be feasible drawing up pumps, leaving them around? But I think there's some you know, obvious reasons why it might be helpful, effect on uterine tone of volatile agents that you don't get with propofol. And people have advocated switching to a Tiva um, anaesthetic from a volatile anaesthetic in the event of obstetric hemorrhage to minimize the effect on uterine tone. The environmental issues, very topical at the moment. The effect of volatile agents, um, well, obviously it's only a short period before delivery, but on the neonate, there's a lot of anxieties even about short exposure of anaesthetics to babies. So I think looking at Tiva in obstetrics is an obvious area to explore, but not without its challenges. And uh, finally, we'll come to you, Chris. Well, I, I do think um, we need to produce uh, guidance for anesthetists about uh, uh, optimum use of general anesthesia. Um, I, I think there's there's some anxiety among people about moving to propofol, for instance, and we need to produce information to facilitate that. Uh, um, I think there's been several reports, um, among them the Embrace reports, um, which uh, will help us to, uh, 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 we, we need to learn the lessons from management of hemorrhage and we need to learn the lessons about um, and general anesthesia in that. Um, and, and I think it's, we probably do need to look again at guidance for difficult intubation in obstetrics. The, 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 the stuff we've got is five years old uh, and we need to start looking at, at, at that again. Um, we also need to look at, um, uh, uh, help for the anaesthetist on the labor ward with um, um, uh, a dedicated theatre team. So I think that makes a lot of difference. And there's not a, a great deal of homogeneity across the country. Great. Well, I think we've covered absolutely everything, um, which is a, a real uh, sign of, of how rich these um, papers are in content, because they really do cover all areas of, of obstetric practice. Uh, they don't just look at awareness, they look at everything in, involved with general anaesthesia, which is great. Um, and uh, we, I think we've covered a, a great deal of that in the last hour. So I hope you've enjoyed that. What we plan to do now is to um, make the papers free to read uh, um, for the rest of the week. Uh, and we'll also turn this uh, video will be available as a pin tweet um, for forever. Uh, and we're also going to turn it into a podcast as well. So you'll be able to listen to this uh, as a podcast in time as well. Um, so thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Neela. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, Chris. And um, goodbye. The Anesthesia Podcast.